Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of The Lone Ranger and the Mystery Ranch by Fran Stryker. Volume 2, Chapter 4, The Outlaw Camp Uncertainty gripped the Lone Ranger as he stood beside his great white stallion in the almost total darkness. Tonto might be close by, somewhere in the weedy tangle. He might be bound and gagged. He might be badly wounded. He might even be dead. To delay and hunt for Tonto would take many precious minutes, when every second counted. There might yet be time to overtake the hooded murderer of old Joe Frisbee. The receding sound of the outlaw's horse still came faintly to the masked man's ears. If Tonto had not been attacked by the outlaws, he would have come on the run at the sound of gunfire in the cabin. Tonto certainly would not have left on his own accord without leaving some sign or message. A message, thought the tall man. I haven't even looked. He quickly felt for the saddle, then slid his hand along the tie strings, and there he felt a bit of paper. His spirits rose in an instant. The paper wasn't there when he'd left Silver. This had to be a message from Tonto. He struck a match, and cupping it in one hand, made out the crudely blocked letters, C. Trail. He recalled Tonto's animal-like ability to penetrate the darkness when his senses were keyed to a high pitch. The note also said, Going to hunt men. So Tonto had left of his own accord to follow a trail through the cottonwoods in the hope of locating the outlaw's camp. The better part of half an hour had been spent with old Joe Frisbee. There was no way of knowing how long ago the Indian had left. Obviously, it was somewhere before the shooting took place or the gunfire would have brought Tonto on the run. Watch for marked trees, the note continued. Tonto, in following a trail that would be invisible to anyone else, had blazed the trunks of trees along the way so the Lone Ranger could come after him. Then the Lone Ranger spoke. Silver, he murmured confidingly to the big-muscled horse. Perhaps we are nearer the end of the chase than we thought. If Tonto's found a trail and followed it, he did it because he felt it must be a pretty important thing to do. Otherwise, he would have never left us. Lone Ranger swung to the saddle and nudged his horse with an unspurred boot. He moved off in the darkness, feeling the tree trunks as he went. No one but Tonto could have hoped to follow such a trail as that made by the Night Legion when they went through the woods. In daylight, it would have been an almost impossible task, but at night, it was practically sheer instinct that guided the Indian friend of the Lone Ranger. Yet, it was an unerring instinct. As he went, Tonto held a heavy knife in his hand and paused from time to time to cut an arrow-shaped notch in the bark of a cottonwood. When the trail turned one way or the other, he made a larger arrow, one the Lone Ranger couldn't miss as he felt the trees in the darkness. He made frequent stops to dismount and examine the ground by touch. The faintest sound of broken twigs, springing back to their original position, the soft depressions in the loamy ground, and even the scent of horses, served to assure him he was on the trail of men who had recently passed. Tonto used four of his five senses in following that particular trail. After what seemed like hours, he came upon the camp quite suddenly. The outlaws were kindling a fire when he broke through the edge of the clearing. 
but they were so intent upon their work they didn't notice him. Cautiously retracing his steps, he tethered his horse a safe distance away from the clearing and returned on foot. The Douglas fir towered close to the edge of the camp of the hooded men. Its broad, far-reaching branches formed a fragrant ceiling for a large part of the clearing. Tonto glanced toward the men and saw the fire beginning to take hold. They heaped more dry wood on the blaze. It was an eerie spectacle. A dozen men, each with a black hood covering his head and neck and falling in loose folds over his shoulders. Here was at least a part of the Night Legion. Tonto decided on a somewhat daring plan. Moving with the agility and grace of a cat, and equally as silent, he climbed the big evergreen. He found a convenient branch from which he could see and not be seen, and then settled himself to watch and to overhear whatever these men below might say. So far the hooded men had spoken only in low monosyllables, but when the fire was going good, they settled themselves around it and stuck out grimy hands for warmth. "'Boss ain't yet come,' one of them growled. "'Well, we'll wait for him. That's what he said to do.' "'Why we gotta wait before we eat? Break out some grub, let's stow it away. I'm famished.' "'Shut up, Scar,' advised another voice. "'All you think about is eating.' Tonto made a mental note of the name Scar. Now, if they would only give last names, it would be something to work with. The name of a member would be far more than all the previous efforts of the Lone Ranger and Tonto had been able to disclose about the Night Legion. Scar spoke again. If the boss says anything about me being hungry, I'll ask him just who it was that found the old man's map. You found it all right, but it was just pure luck. Yeah, well, call this luck, too. Scar held out a well-worn leather money belt. I found this in that shack, too. All the men showed interest. Maybe you don't want to split up what's inside of it with me, being as I found it just by luck. It's full of gold. What'll the boss say? He said his say already. He said we could whack up the gold inside this belt among ourselves. The men crowded close, eager for a share of the stolen gold but the one called Scar shoved the belt out of sight under his shirt. Tonto could almost see the self-satisfied grin he had to be wearing under the mask. It was evident in his voice when he spoke again. I'm hungry, pards. When I'm hungry, I don't feel much like dividing up a lot of gold. Well, that put things in a new light for the men. Four of them moved at once, opening saddlebags and bringing out supplies. Salt, pork, coffee, hardtack, and a few utensils they used in cooking in the open were spread out near the fire. One of the men took a bucket to a nearby spring and returned with water. Tonto watched the proceedings with interest. He knew that to eat, the men would have to remove their black hoods, and this meant he'd have a chance to see their faces. Perhaps he'd recognize one of them. The coffee pot was filled and balanced on rocks over the fire. One of the men opened a clasp knife and cut chunks from the pork. Scar did nothing but watch. He probably felt he deserved to be waited on, in view of the gold he was soon to pass out. Yet he had no reason to feel generous. He should have known these men who traveled with him. Every one of them was a killer, and none would hesitate to take his life if he tried to hold out on them. 
They knew no law save the one mysterious boss who gave them orders. Long minutes passed, and Tonto became cramped in one position. But he didn't dare to move to ease his aching muscles. The bacon was almost cooked, and the coffee pot was boiling. Now, at any instant, the meal might be declared ready. And there it was. Scar removed his mask. Tonto leaned forward slightly to get a good look at his face. The scar for which he was named was a livid crease from an old knife wound, starting at the chin and running up the left cheek until it was lost in the heavy tangle of coarse black hair. His thick, shaggy eyebrows made his deep-set eyes even deeper. A cruel-looking, thin-lipped mouth was surmounted by a broken nose that had healed with a twist to the left. The other men, too, were now unhooded, and every one of them had a face equally sinister. Cruelty showed in every line. With one exception, the outlaws were clean-shaven. The exception wore a short, clipped beard. He was the man who spoke first after the meal began. Does any of you hombres know just where the boss comes from? There was silence for a full half-minute. The others looked at the speaker with surprise. Scar mouthed his food in one cheek and broke the silence in a slow voice. Anson, you being a new member of the outfit have got a lot to learn. First and most important thing is you don't ask no questions. But ain't anybody ever seen the boss? Don't none of you know who he is or where he hangs out when he ain't with some of the boys? Two men, replied Scar, found out who he was. Just two, no more. Since that time, no one has been interested in finding out. Just take your orders, carry them out, collect your pay, and let it go at that. What happened to the two that found out? Someone muttered. Scar took a long swig from his tin cup before he answered. Both of them are dead. Some of the boys here seen them die, and the way they suffered before they finally went out, it was horrible. Hardened men though they were, a couple of the outlaws shuddered visibly at the recollection of what must have been a frightful sight. Scar tossed off the remainder of his coffee and then held the cup toward the squatting man nearest the fire for a refill. You see, boss don't like his men to get too curious. Anson nodded. Ah, savvy. For a moment he ate in silence, apparently considering what Scar said. Then he cleared his throat. Gents, I suppose it's best not to be too curious. But there's one thing that's rankled in my mind. All eyes turned toward him. A couple of men muttered under their breaths. Why'd the boss stay behind instead of riding away from that shack with the rest of us? Several of the outlaws squirmed uneasily. Another growled. Curious fool won't last long in this outfit. The man known as Scar raked a thumbnail on his chin and made a rasping sound against the bristle. He seemed to be something of a lieutenant to the unknown boss. The others looked to him, waiting to see how he'd reply to Anson's latest query. Scar started to speak, then changed his mind. His expression changed, and a slightly amused look came into his face. Ain't you aiming to answer a man? Yeah, Anson, I'll answer you. Scar spoke in the tone of a voice a man might use in speaking to a dull-witted child. I'll answer you. You see, the boss don't like loose ends. When we finished up in the frisbee shack, he stayed around 
to make sure there wasn't no loose ends a-danglin'. As if that closed the subject, he rose to his feet, gulped down the second cup of black coffee, and then rinsed his cup in a handy pail of water. Tonto hugged close to the branch of the Douglas fir. Even his Indian calm was shaken by the thought that at any moment the boss of the Night Legion might be arriving to join the men in camp. The clump of a horse froze the outlaws to attention. Scar held his hand up to demand silence, but the gesture was unnecessary. None of the outlaws moved or spoke. There was no sound save for the soft cackle of the burning fire. Each man reached for a gun and waited, tense, ready for action, and then Scar relaxed. "'It's all right, boys,' he said. "'That's the boss of coming here. I know his horse.' The boss, the boss of the Night Legion. Now at last, after all these dragging months of trailing, Tonto was about to see the boss. Chapter 5. The Fight Ho there! The voice coming from the darkness of the woods outside the outlaw's camp had a peculiar muffled quality due to perhaps the heavy black hood that enveloped the head and neck. Ho! Scar shouted a reply. That ye boss! A coal-black mare entered the clearing of the woods. The rider was a giant with huge barrel-shaped chest and torso, and shoulders of extreme breadth. Unlike the other outlaws, this man wore a sombrero over his black hood. "'One of you take care of my horse,' he ordered. The three men stepped forward. One held the reins of the powerful animal, while another offered a hand to aid the boss in dismounting. Disregarding the proffered hand, the boss swung to the ground. He moved with astonishing ease and agility for a man of his size. Tonto, looking down from his perch on the branch overhead, noticed that the boss was shorter than he first appeared. His legs were unusually short for a man of his bulk. Had those squat, slightly bowed legs been proportionate to his torso, the man would have been at least eight inches taller. How about some grub, boss? It was Scar who spoke. No, snapped the leader. He walked close to the fire, then faced away from it. Standing with his stubby legs slightly spread, his hands clasped behind his back. He studied each of the men around him, turning his hooded head slightly from one side to the other. Anson dropped his eyes and fumbled with a bit of remaining food on his tin plate. The boss seemed to stare at him. New man, he demanded, turning towards Scar. Yeah, his name is Anson, Snake Anson. He's okay. The hooded head moved slightly. Might bear a little investigation, he suggested. Another moment during which the boss eyed each one of his men through the eye slits of his mask. Then apparently satisfied that all was as it should be, he began to speak in a less domineering style. I was delayed some at the shock. There was a loose end that needed tying. Is that so, boss? Yes. Masked man came to the shack and doctored Frisbee till he got the old galoot a-talkin'. Masked man? Surprise showed in Scar's voice. The masked man, just savvy. Did you drill him? No, I wished to see just how much Frisbee could tell. Then I seen he was telling more than he should, so I drew a bead on him through the window, 
I figured to get him first, and then the masked man, but I missed. You missed? Disbelief was evident in the voice of the man who smoked. Moss, you never miss. I did this time, snarled the leader. The masked man saw a look in Frisbee's face when the old galoot spotted me at the window. He whirled and fired just like I did. I got the old man clean through the heart, missed the other, had to hightail it. He paused and his men went silent. Well, I wasn't the only one to miss his shot. The Lone Ranger missed, same as I did, he snapped. Tonto's hand showed white across the knuckles from the way he gripped the branch in tension. Though the Indian had yet to kill his first man, and though he knew it was against the principles of the Lone Ranger to shoot even the most evil of outlaws, he'd been ready to shoot the boss if his masked friend had been killed. Now, however, knowing that the Lone Ranger still lived, Tonto relaxed a bit. You seem to have gotten away all right, suggested Scar. I got away all right, but I left a loose end. The same loose end that's pestered us for months. Boys, the sooner we get this lone ranger, the better I'll like it. The others nodded their agreement. If, said Scar, we don't get him, he sure as thunder gonna get us. He might have got me tonight if his horse hadn't been some distance from the shack. Well, what's the plan now? Are we going to concentrate on getting the Lone Ranger, or go through with the other scheme? Till I give orders to the contrary, Scar, you'll go through with things just as I plot them. Scar agreed. We got half the map now, and that's what we went after. Now, boys, here's the orders. The westbound stage is due around Gila Gap sometime tomorrow afternoon. There'll be two women aboard her. They're the nieces of Grant Whitcomb and they're going to the Whitcomb Ranch to live there. They're due to leave the stage at Showdown and go from there to the ranch by horseback. Where to stop the stage and stick her up, right? That's right. What about the girls? I don't want them hurt none. Rob the stage is all. That's it. Then take all the girls have got, including the other half of the map, that they'll have packed somewhere in their belongings. What about the garden driver? You want them to stay alive? No use killing them unless they happen to recognize some of you by your voices. In that case, let them have some hot lead. The girls won't recognize you because they're strangers here. That's about all I got to tell you boys tonight. I'll leave you here and count on you getting the other half of the map. When we get the hull of it, we'll have a gold mine all our own. And a mighty good one too. One that ain't even been claimed or registered. Why? Scar seemed to have sharper ears than the others. He heard the faint sound that Tonto had heard a moment previously, the sound of a horse approaching. All the men grew tense. They were not expecting others of their gang. This new arrival could be no one but the Lone Ranger, the man who, above all others, they wanted to see dead. The hoofbeat stopped. Slowly, silently, every outlaw drew his gun, and moved slightly back from the fire. Anyone coming into the clearing would be attacked from all sides by a withering crossfire that would cut him down almost instantly. Then the soft call of a nightbird floated on the air. Tato heard it and knew that it came from his masked friend. That, whispered the boss, was a man-made coal. Stand ready, boys. It ain't none of our men. 
The firelight's reflection danced on the cold steel of naked pistols, the almost inaudible snapping of gun hammers being drawn back struck Tonto with sinister meaning. He had to act. He had in some way to warn the Lone Ranger or attract the attention of the killers. He decided, and he acted suddenly. Tonto let out a piercing yell and dropped from his perch squarely out to the back of the nearest outlaw. Before his feet even hit the ground, as the outlaw went down, his hard, bald fist drove into the bristly, bearded jaw with stunning force. The man grunted as a bone cracked and went limp. But now the other men recovered from their surprise. A gun roared, lashing fire in a line toward Tonto. He felt the force of air as a slug whizzed past his head, narrowly missing his left ear. The outlaws had to hold their fire for fear of drilling some of their own number. They closed in on Tonto with fists and smashing gun butts. Tonto dove head on into the nearest of the men and heard a whoosh of air as he rammed the fellow's stomach. On his knees, he caught himself, dodged out of the way as one of the killers kicked at him viciously, and another came charging in. Blood covered the Indian's forearm, where a stray bullet raked the flesh, but he felt no pain. He lunged at the men, grabbed each one in a brawny arm, and brought their heads together. There was a cracking sound, and both relaxed and slumped to the ground as the fighting red man dropped them and swung to ward off the crashing blow of a gun barrel, swung with all the force of Scar's strong arm. It struck Tonto a glancing blow that stunned him and brought blood spurting from his head. Mad rage in the Indian gave way to berserk strength. He was the boss he wanted, the ruthless boss of the Night Legion. His fighting fury brought him to his feet a dozen times when he went down. It sustained him, kept him fighting with the tenacity of a bulldog. The fight went on with dazzling speed. Only seconds had elapsed since Tonto had dropped from the tree. Then a mighty shout arose above all the sounds of battle. A ringing cry rang through the camp. Come on, Silver! Hooves clattered close, pounding on the ground and the mightiest of all horses charged into the outlaw's midst. The lone ranger, a clubbed gun in each hand, swung into battle. Scar leveled his gun point-blank, less than a yard from Tonto's head. He fired, and the gun jumped, belching orange flame. But the shot went harmlessly into the air, for at the instant that the outlaw squeezed the trigger, the rearing forefeet of silver lashed at him. The killer went down, screaming and clawing in agony. Again, the white stallion rose high above the outlaws, lashing at them with his sharp, silver-shod hooves. At them! At them, silver old boy! encouraged the masked man. To Tonto, he yelled. I've brought your horse! Get to it! Come on, get away, Tonto! He swung his guns viciously at the outlaws, fighting his way to Tonto's side. He seemed a part of the mighty stallion, and the nimble silver sidestepped, plunged, and kicked to keep the outlaws falling over one another in their efforts to avoid being struck down. Tonto was free for an instant. The leader got away, the masked man shouted. He's the one we want. These men don't count. Get away while we're alive to go after the boss. Tonto heard and understood. The odds against them were too great for the fight to last long. It was only because the outlaws were taken by surprise it had gone on for as long as it had. The men were already regaining their feet and bringing their guns to bear. 
Another gun roared, and the slug passed inches from the masked man's head. He saw that Tonto was beside his own horse, leaping into the saddle ready to ride. Then his voice lifted in a shout, known through the length and breadth of the entire region. Hi-o, Silver! The Night Legion screamed in rage. Their guns were blazing, but their aim was hasty and hampered by the beating many of the men had taken. In their rage, the outlaws fired into the woods until their guns were empty. But they fired without a target, their bullets landing harmlessly among the trees, for the Lone Ranger and Tonto had escaped. Somewhere beyond the circle of light in the clearing, the masked rider and the Indian were breaking through the woods, and Tonto had a lot to tell. Chapter 6 The Stage to Showdown Tonto threw more wood on the fire, and with a crackling sparkling, the blaze curled up, fanned by the slight breeze that stirred through the cottonwoods. In the distance, a pack of coyotes pierced the air with their cries. After their escape from the camp of the Night Legion, the two had ridden for the better part of two hours to put plenty of distance between them and the outlaws. They were dog-tired from the many miles of riding since the afternoon of the day before. It must have been less than two hours to dawn when they finally felt it safe to stop, kindle as small a fire as possible to ward off the chill of the pre-dawn period, and catch a little sleep. But Tonto had a lot to tell before the two could sleep. Lying next to each other in their blankets, one listened while the other talked. Lone Ranger found that Tonto already knew about the attack on old Joe Frisbee, so he listened attentively while his friend related the outlaw's conversation. Speaking in soft, monosyllabic words, Tonto explained about Scar and Snake Anson, about the boss who left no loose ends, and about the half a map that marked a gold mine. He told how the two girls, nieces of Grant Whitcomb, were due that afternoon at Showdown, and how the outlaws planned to stop the stage and secure the other half of Joe Frisbee's map. At one point, the Lone Ranger interrupted. As long as none of those men know who the boss is, there's little to be gained by trying to capture them. The boss is the man we want. The others are nothing but pawns, and he can replace them as fast as we can capture them. Furthermore, I don't think those we saw represent more than a tenth of the full membership of the Night Legion. When the masked man finished speaking, Tonto asked, Do you know about the Whitcomb Ranch? Not a great deal. I know it's a good-sized ranch about half a day's ride north of the stage trail between Gila Gap and Showdown. Whitcomb never married. He lives in the ranch house with an old Indian named Natasha, who keeps the house for him. He's been there a long time. Tonto nodded slowly, and the Lone Ranger continued. Whitcomb has a lot of cattle and employs a lot of men to handle it. It's about all I know about him or his ranch. Tonto knew more than this, but he hesitated, wondering if it would be best to mention the weird things he had heard. The Lone Ranger might not know them, but there was a chance that the stories told by Indian friends of Tonto, brought from the ranch by old Natasha, were simply idle talk, without foundation of fact. There was one story about two men who went to the ranch and never returned. Little was said of those men, but it was generally known that theirs had been a one-way trail. They were definitely not among the men who worked for Whitcomb. There was another story brought from the place by the aged Indian woman 
and circulated freely among the red men, but possibly unknown to the white folks. It dealt with the frantic screams, a man's scream of abject terror in the dead of night, then silence with no explanation for the screams. Wickham himself was a peculiar sort of man. He rarely saw anyone save those who worked for him. He never came to town to mingle with the other ranchers of the region, never joined any of the ranchers' associations or attended any meetings. He seemed to live a life apart from his fellow men. Some bitterness in his past must have soured him on life in general. Not even his own men knew him very well. All business connected with handling his ranch was left to his foreman, who hired and fired men and gave orders, seemingly without interference or suggestion from the owner. And there were other things, too. Most cowboys were prone to wander from one spread to another. They worked until wanderlust got them and then pulled up stakes and sought new berths. But not the men who worked for Whitcomb. He either paid them handsomely or had some hold on them that made them stay year in and year out. Few men were hired to work there, even if few were fired. A change in the staff of the cattle handlers at Wickham Ranch was rare. Tonto mulled all these things over in his mind. For some time after the steady breathing of the Lone Ranger showed him to be asleep, the Indian lay in his blankets, eyes closed, but wide awake, trying to decide whether he should tell his friend all he knew of the Whitcomb place or keep his knowledge to himself. Finally, he decided on the latter course, and he rolled in his blankets and settled himself in and slept. The difference between the two girls who sat inside the lumbering stage headed for showdown was as great as the difference between night and day. Marge was slightly above average height for a girl, slim and somewhat stately in her bearing. Her hair was a deep chestnut, done in a soft coil low on her head. Of a serious nature, she rarely spoke unless to make a soft-voiced statement of fact or reply courteously to a question. Her younger sister Sally was short and agile, pert and blonde. Sally's voice was high-pitched. She was inclined to prattle aimlessly, keeping up a running fire of talk about anything and everything that came into her head. Sally was a high-strung girl, filled with the joy of living, and thrilled to every new thing she saw on her great adventure. The girls had never been west before this trip, and the thought of leaving their eastern home for good was somewhat appalling to Marge. She looked on the future in this wild, newly settled country with a feeling of uncertainty and bewilderment. Sally, on the other hand, saw nothing to be afraid of. The vast stretches of open prairie, the mountains in the distance, and the occasional glimpses of cowboys and towns the stage went through thrilled every fiber of her being. Sally was but eighteen, and Marge three years her senior. They were daughters of a pioneer who struck into the West when they were children. His wife had remained at home to care for the girls, while their father tried to get his share of the good fortune that came to so many of the men who dared break into the new country. Three years ago, Whitcomb returned east with good news, great hopes for the future, and half of a map, showing where he and his partner had found their strike. His plans had been to close all his affairs in the east, load his wife and daughters into a wagon, and return to the rich gold-bearing country to stake his claim with Joe Frisbee. But his plans had miscarried. First, he failed in his efforts to find backers for the venture, 
The mining of the gold would have to be hard rock mining, which called for tools and supplies, and these in turn required cash. Laughter and derision meant all of Whitcomb's efforts to sell an interest in his claim for the cash to work it. Then his wife died, and this blow, on top of all of his disappointment and discouragement, broke Wickham's health. In the year he lay bedridden, his meager savings were used up. His house, mortgaged to the limit, went to the bank when he died. And Marge and Sally were left with nothing but half a map, the word of their father that was valuable, and a deathbed request that they write to his brother, telling full details of these past years, and ask him to provide a home for them. The pride of the girls would have prevented their requesting Uncle Grant to house and feed them, but they were convinced that in the torn bit of paper they had something of great value. They were confident with their uncle's aid that they might locate Joe Frisbee, secure the remainder of the map, and find their inheritance. Marge had the map securely pinned inside her shirtwaist. From time to time, while the stage bowled along the uneven trail, she felt to make sure that it was still in place. Sally was half asleep in her corner of the big stage. She looked so like a child that when she was asleep, Marge was amused. Then she turned to look at the passing landscape and made an alarming discovery. Off to the north of the stage trail and slightly to the rear of the big coach, a horse was running parallel to the stage. The horse was big and white, as fine a horse as Marge had ever seen. She was a lover of horses herself, and the girl knew good horse flesh when she saw it, and despite the feeling of fear that sent a thrill through her, she couldn't help but admire the easy stride and rippling muscles of the animal. It was the rider that frightened her. His face was partly covered by a mask. She had noticed the horse a mile back, but something else disturbed her attention before she saw the rider. Now she realized that the masked man was intentionally keeping pace with the stagecoach. Stories of murderers and stagecoach robberies had been drilled into her by friends in the East who had bid her farewell. Now all the things she'd heard came back to her. The guard and driver of the stage seemed not to have noticed the masked man who traveled with them. Marge was no coward, or easily frightened by trifles, but here was a grim reality. The rider was cutting in slightly to lessen the distance between him and the stage. The guns he wore were to Marge filled with menace. She nudged Sally with her elbow. Sally, Sally, wake up. Huh? What's the matter? Sally covered a sleepy yawn with her small hand and blinked her eyes at the bright sunlight that streaked through the windows of the stage. She sat erect. What's the trouble? Have we reached showdown? No, but look over there. Sally looked where her sister pointed. That man has been following us for a long time, and I just noticed he's masked. Gosh, that's a fine horse, and he's sure a marvelous rider, breathed Sally admiringly. Sally, he's probably an outlaw. He's planning to rob the stage. He might kill us. Well, then we'd better be nice to him. I wonder, Marge, if he's as handsome as some of the men we've seen, went on the younger sister. You're positively brazen. I'm darn near scared to death, but that won't help any. What do you suppose he'll do? I wish I knew. The masked man was cutting in closer now, putting on a burst of speed to overtake and pass the stagecoach. Above the rattle of the stage and the clatter of the horses, his voice came to the girls. 
Come on, Silver. Marge put her head slightly out the window to look at the trail ahead. She wondered if there were any sign of the town yet. The thing she saw made her more certain than ever that this was a hold-up at hand. The trail led over a narrow bridge that spanned a creek. On each side of the trail, as it narrowed to meet the bridge, a dense tangle of weeds grew shoulder-high. This, the girl thought, would furnish a perfect hiding place for other highwaymen. The bridge itself was blocked by three horsemen. Even as she looked, Marge saw the men dismounting, leaving their horses to effectively close off the bridge and stop the stage. Now they came forward on foot with rifles ready for use. Quickly, Sally, she ordered her sister. Get down on the floor where you'll not be shot. Not on your life, retorted the spirited Sally. I'm going to stay right where I can see everything happening. Frightened though she might be, Sally was having the thrill of her life. The driver's shouts were accompanied by a lurching of the stage and complaining creaks and squeaks of the springs. They were stopping. The masked man on the white stallion came to a sliding halt close by them. Holding two guns leveled on the guard and the driver, an Indian and two more men appeared beside the stage on foot. The girls had little to fear from thieves. Their supply of cash was pitifully meager and no one could possibly know about that torn bit of paper that Marge felt with her hand through the material of her waist. But possibly their Uncle Grant was wealthy. The girls might be captured and held for ransom. All manner of awful things might be ahead now. The door of the stage was opened suddenly, and the dark face of the Indian appeared. Marge gave a frightened gasp of surprise. Sally stared at the level gaze that met her as Tonto looked inside. Gosh, she breathed, leaving the rest of her thought unspoken. Then Tanto commanded, You too, get out of there. Chapter 7 The Hold-Up We'd, we'd better obey him, Sally, faltered Marge Whitcomb. He looks frightfully dangerous. Sally nodded her curly head and picked up the few belongings that had been inside the stagecoach with her. She looked beyond the brawny Indian and thrilled inwardly at the sight of the tall, clean-cut-looking man astride the powerful white horse. She saw his mouth and chin beneath the black mask he wore, and frightened though she was, she wondered just how handsome the rest of this man's face might be. Tonto stood slightly to one side to permit the girls to exit from the stage. One brown hand reached out to assist Marge in making the long step to the ground but she ignored it, jumping lightly down. Sally was close behind her. Then, for the first time, the girls got a good look at the others. The guard sat with hands at shoulder level, and the driver was obeying emphatic commands from a grim-faced man on the other side of the stage. He tossed the girls' luggage from the top of the stage. It landed with a dull thud on the ground close to Sally. Why don't you two do something instead of taking their orders? Sally's fear was outweighed by anger at the rough treatment accorded her few belongings. What's the idea of not lifting a hand in defense of your passengers? The guard looked at the girl with an expression that was half annoyance, half amusement. Better take it easy, miss, he advised. Sure, you can take it easy. All you've got to do when these crooks are finished is drive on and tell how you've lost your passengers and their luggage. What about us? Sally? 
Well, maybe you're willing to let these crooks get away with this, Marge Whitcomb, but I'm not. She stomped a small foot. You? You? She shook her finger at the masked man. You're the leader of these outlaws. You make them leave our things alone. There's nothing we have that's worth stealing. I'm sorry you think we're outlaws. There was something likable in the calm, courteous manner of the masked man. But we're not. I can't take the time to explain things to the guard and the driver, but I think one of my friends will assure them that they needn't worry about you. Not outlaws! No, we came to meet you, to take you to your uncle's ranch. The men who brought those paint horses will ride back to showdown on the stage. The horses were brought here for you girls to ride. What? You're not going to rob us? The tall masked man shook his head. That's all the stuff they've got, called Buck Fisher, the driver of the stage. Everything has been explained, mister, so you needn't worry about the law being on you for this affair. Very well, called back the masked man. The men who helped me stop you are from the sheriff's office. They'll go inside the stage in place of the girls. Good. You might need their guns before you reach showdown. You'll find they'll give a good account of themselves. Just who is this man? demanded Sally of the grim-faced, quiet guard who sat unmoved on the high seat. If he's not an outlaw, why is he wearing a mask? Just do what he says and you'll be safe, ma'am. Jim Blunt took up his rifle, the one he dropped when the other men showed gun muzzles. Do what he says and you'll be all right. That doesn't tell us who he is. All I know is he's called his horse Silver, and there ain't no one knows his name. The guard spoke as if the very fact that the horse was named Silver was a guarantee of the masked man's character. Sally began to speak again, but a nudge from her sister changed her mind. Tonto had already gathered all the bags and lashed them to the tie strings behind his own and the Lone Ranger's saddles. Buck Fisher was gathering the reins to continue down the trail to showdown, and the guard's rifle was again cradled in his elbow. The two men, who had apparently come from the sheriff's office, if the statement of the Lone Ranger was to be believed, were climbing to the seat so recently occupied by the two girls. He speaks like he's had some schooling, whispered Marge. I don't know what there is about his voice, but... She paused, and Sally took up where she left off. But you like him! I feel I can trust him. I like him, too! Sally had a way of interpreting her sister's statements as she wanted. Get up! Buck Fisher cracked the whip and slapped the reins across the rearmost horse's flanks. Then, with a straining and a creaking, the stagecoach started on its lumbering way with the big iron-rimmed wheels churning clouds of hot dust from the trail. Now, said the Lone Ranger, I can explain why we took this high-handed way of doing things. Sally feigned a rage she didn't really feel. It's about time you did some explaining. The very idea of stopping that stage and ordering us about like this and, and throwing our bags in the dirt. Well, the very idea. I'm sorry, but it was necessary. I don't see why. Uncle Grant wrote us and said there would be men to meet the stagecoach at showdown. Instead of that, you... Hush, Sally, admonished Marge. I'll do nothing of the sort replied the smaller girl defiantly. She continued to berate the tall masked man, who secretly was pleased with her manner. He saw that all fear of him was gone. He saw, too, or rather, some instinct seemed to tell him, 
but the girl was not really as angry as she appeared to be. When finally, curly-headed Sally Whitcomb paused to take a much-needed breath, the masked man spoke. I'm really very sorry we had to do it this way, but if we hadn't stopped you, you would have been stopped just two miles beyond the bridge by real outlaws. Marge paled at this. Her large eyes showed the fear that gripped her. What, what would outlaws want of us? She stammered. The Lone Ranger felt that frankness would be best. They wanted the map you brought here. Your father's map. But, but that, that, that map? I didn't think anybody knew about that map. Sally almost spluttered in her surprise at the calm statement of the Lone Ranger. I knew about it because I was with Joe Frisbee when he died. Joe Frisbee? Yes. As briefly as possible, the masked man related the essentials of Joe Frisbee's murder and the stolen map. He told how he had gone to the sheriff in the county seat and secured the aid of the deputies. They rode the horses Tonto and I borrowed for them, planning to go back on the stage. The girls noticed the two horses standing ready for use. One of the outlaws has Joe Frisbee's part of the map right now. When you two are safely at your uncle's ranch, we'll do what we can to recover that bit of paper. But how did you know we were coming here? asked Marge, still somewhat suspicious. Skipping most of the details, the Lone Ranger explained how Tonto overheard the outlaws talking in their camp. Then how did these outlaws know about the map, then? asked Sally. I don't know. That's one of the things I hope to find out, and the sooner we get started for the ranch, the sooner I'll be able to devote my time to getting answers to a lot of questions. Marge nodded. Countless other questions raced through her confused mind. Things had happened so fast in the past half hour that she was hardly aware of what it was all about. But one thing she did know. The precious bit of paper was still pinned securely to the inside of her clothing. I hope you can both ride horses. They were the most gentle ones we could find in the time we had. Of course we can. Sally's confidence had returned in full. We rode a lot in the east. Tato's face, generally without expression, showed a trace of amusement at the girl. She would be due for some surprises if she thought the well-trained, mild-mannered eastern horses were anything like the half-wild, barely-broken mustangs of the west. He moved toward Marge to assist her in mounting. The dark girl, however, hesitated. Her skirt was undivided and was in no way suited for riding astride. The saddle would never do for a long cross-country ride in the ladylike side-saddle form. She glanced at Sally and saw her sister, unabashed, swinging her right leg over the saddle with boyish ease and ordering the masked man to adjust the stirrups for her. Then, blushing slightly, Marge also mounted. The Lone Ranger seemed tense. From time to time throughout the entire talk, he had paused frequently to listen. Then, as the two girls were finally ready for the trip to Whitcomb's ranch, the faint sound of gunfire reached them. The worst fears of the Lone Ranger had come to pass. Though the girls were safe, the outlaws had attacked the stage. They would be there in numbers to shoot it out with the guard and the driver and the two deputies. He glanced toward Tonto and saw the Indian shake his head slowly in negation. The girls hadn't seemed to hear the shooting. The Lone Ranger had warned the deputies of what might be in store, and in turn had probably repeated full details to Buck Fisher and Jim Blunt. 
Fear of the battle, however, would never cause those men to turn from the trail. They knew full well the ruthless savagery of the Night Legion, and knew that when the attack was made there would be no quarter given and none asked. Yet without hesitation they had gone on. The attack had come with startling suddenness and no warning. It began with a fusillade of gunfire, raking the stage, wounding both the guard and the driver. The six big horses plunged and reared, clattering to a sudden stop as Buck yanked hard on the reins. The stabbing pain of a bullet in his shoulder added fury to his vicious handling of his six-gun. Jim Blunt was slumping on the seat, blood streaming from his temple. Buck grabbed the rifle, shouting to the men inside the stage, and leaped to the ground, firing as he dashed, head down into a clump of trees from which the rifle fire had come. There they are, he yelled to the deputies, who were scrambling from the stage. Each lawman held a brace of guns, and all four guns were blasting hot lead at the outlaws. Buck Fisher suddenly found himself surrounded by killers. He swung the empty rifle at the nearest and cracked it against a man's hooded head. He heard one of the deputies behind him gasp in pain. Throwing a quick glance in that direction, he saw the lawman falling to the ground with a red smear spreading across the front of his shirt and vest. Cursing in justified rage, Buck fired the remaining bullets of his six-gun into those nearest him and had the satisfaction of seeing two of the hooded men collapse. When the hammer of his weapon fell on an empty chamber, there was no time to reload. Drawing back his arm, he flung the heavy gun with all of his might straight into the black hood of another killer. It hit hard with a sickening thud between the eye holes of the cloth. Then a thousand dazzling lights seemed to burst in Buckfisher's brain. A roaring filled his ear, and he felt himself slipping into a bottomless pit of total blackness. When he recovered consciousness, he found himself sitting on the soft ground with his back propped against a tree. His head ached frightfully, and his shoulder throbbed where a bullet had drilled. He blinked his eyes, trying to clear away the fog from his brain. When he tried to shake his head, the motion sent new stabs of pain racing through his entire body. Gradually, the realization came to him that he was bound to a tree. Before him, a half a dozen men were lolling at their ease, and the hoods removed from ugly faces to make smoking possible. Again, he tried to shake away the clouds that obscured his brain. The movement hurt. A thousand pains shot both ways from his neck. Slowly, however, Buck Fisher was able to take account of his surroundings. Jim Blunt was lashed to another tree nearby. Buck noticed the blood mixed with sweat and dust that had dried and caked on the guard's face. The night legion hadn't bothered to treat Jim's wound. Buck's shoulder had gone equally unattended. Jim Blunt was conscious, but only barely. His lips were puffed and swollen. A tiny trickle of blood seeped from the corner of his mouth. His eyes were glazed. There was an angry defiance that persisted, despite the partial loss of consciousness. The sight of his partner made Buck Fisher look away, but some awful fascination reclaimed his attention. One of the outlaws stood before Jim Blunt. His huge, ham-like fists were clenched, and his voice shook with rage. Talk, you closed-mouthed son of a snake, or I'll let you have another in the same place. Jim Blunt tried to answer, but his battered lips could barely form words. The outlaw, however, must have understood the big guard's taunt. 
He swung his huge fist hard and his smack with a sickening thud against Jim Blunt's cruelly battered mouth. The blow on top of all the others was more than human flesh and blood could stand. Jim's head snapped back and merciful unconsciousness saved him further pain and torture for the time being. Now look what you done, Scar, one of the men growled. You went and knocked them out before we learned where them two women went to. You mind your own business, Anson, Scar snarled. I am, complained the other. But now we gotta wait till the other man comes too. Both them deputies are dead, and if we're going to get them any facts, we gotta get them from these two hombres. Scar turned toward Buck Fisher when the man called Anson spoke. His eyes lit with an evil satisfaction when he saw the young stagecoach driver conscious. Well, looks like we don't have to do no waiting at all, he drawled with satisfaction. Scar walked slowly toward Buck Fisher, massaging his knuckles as he did so. We aim to find out where your passengers went to. They was supposed to be on that stage till it got to sundown, but they wasn't on board. Now, if you know what's smart, you'll save me a lot of trouble and yourself a lot of misery by talking. Buck was trying hard to think. Refusal would bring the same treatment that Jim Blunt had received. He glanced toward the sun, carefully calculating the time that he'd been unconscious. It was much lower in the sky than when he'd first stopped the stage at the Lone Ranger's command. By this time, the two girls would be almost to the Whitcomb Ranch. It would be far too late for the hooded men to overtake them, even if the killers knew where they'd gone. Moreover, the sisters were in the care of the Lone Ranger. Surely between the Lone Ranger and Grant Whitcomb, with all his cowboys, the girls would be quite safe. All right, Buck Fisher said. I'll talk. Scar grinned. Well, now that's good sense. Easier than I thought it'd be, commented Anson, and a couple of the other men nodded their heads in satisfaction. Go on. Where are the girls gone to? commanded Scar. How do I know you'll let me go if I tell you? countered Buck Fisher. You don't. Then what's there for me to gain by talking? You seen what your guard got for not talking. Sure, but how do I know I won't get the same after I'm done telling you all I know about the girls? Buck was stalling for every possible moment. The more time he could allow the girls and their escorts, the greater their margin of safety. Scar tugged at his heavy gun belt and hitched up his greasy trousers before he replied. Say here, driver. It's up to the boss what happens to you. Don't talk and you get rough handling. Talk and we'll take you to the boss and he'll decide what happens. He ain't gonna let me go free. I've seen the faces of you men. Well, there's several ways a man can die. Some ways. Well, some ways are awful hard. Scar paused to emphasize that statement. I savvy. I'm getting mighty tired of waiting for you to start telling things. Girls are where you can't get at them. They left the stage a good ways back when they met a couple of men with extra horses and rid over land to the Whitcomb Ranch. Does that answer your questions? Ain't they going to show down at all? No, they ain't. I wondered if that confounded redskin heard the plans. That was Snake Anson who spoke. 
Scar glanced at Anson. That redskin what jumped us from the fir tree last night, explained Anson. He must have been hid there during the time the boss outlined the whole plan. He flipped his half-smoked cigarette away from him, then asked, Was it a masked man and an engine that took them girls from the stage? Bucked it and tried to suppress the grin he felt. It sure as thunder was, he stated. What's more, that masked man is pretty much known generally as the Lone Ranger. Scar cursed the news. He's interfering too blame much in what we do. That's twice that hombre's crossed our trail and made us come out second best. He finished with vile curses and then stepped forward with his open hand and slapped Buck Fisher on the side of the head with a force that made the driver dizzy. The boss has got to know this, he shouted to his men. I better ride right and wing tail him. The men nodded in agreement. I'll get started prano and leave a message in the hollow tree where he can find it. You, Snake Anson, take charge of these two survivors. Me? There was surprise in Anson's voice. I'm sort of new in this organization to be taking charge of anything. I say for you to take charge and that settles it. What's that include? What am I to do with these two men? Fix their wounds and coddle them like a nursemaid? No, bellowed the infuriated Scar. Take charge of fixing them so they can't tell nobody who they seen in these outfit. You know what the boss says. Don't leave no loose ends. Oh. Anson apparently understood, and with a sinking of all his hopes, Buck Fisher likewise understood. Scar had pronounced the penalty of death. He would leave Anson to carry out the details. Buck watched Scar as he swung into the saddle of an awaiting horse. In every movement the outlaw made, there was a vicious ruthlessness. He jerked the horse's head around in a manner that made Buck Fisher, a lover of good horseflesh, writhe in rage. He jabbed his three-inch rowels into the tender flesh of the horse's side and rode away. Then Snake Anson rose to his feet. Boys! He drawled, taking his gun from its holster with meticulous care and examining his chamber. I reckon I'm the one selected for tying up loose ends, cause they might be some doubt as to the stuff I'm made of. Chicken-hearted, white-livered men ain't no place in the Night Legion. Looks like I've been called on to prove I ain't none of them things. The others watched Snake Anson with keen interest. They too knew Scar had appointed him executioner to test him, and they wondered if he'd falter in his task or go through as ordered. I wonder, Snake Anson said, just what you boys would do if I was to refuse to carry out Scar's orders. He glanced around and saw several men reach slowly for their six guns. He chuckled softly. That's what I thought. Was I to refuse, there'd be three shootings taking place here instead of only two. Well, I ain't aiming to refuse. The killer was calm and deliberate as he carefully examined his heavy gun. He knew all eyes were on him, and he seemed to enjoy his temporary prominence. Buck Fisher glanced at Jim Blunt. Glad poor Jim's unconscious, he thought. He won't ever know what hit him. 
Finally, Snake Anson closed his weapon with a snap and walked toward Jim Blunt. A moment later, the air was shattered by the thunder of a heavy gun in Anson's hand, then a second blast close on the heels of the first. A killer had proved himself a true member of the Night Legion.